is one of our lay pastors in our church. Uh, our lay pastors do a great job in our congregation. Um, good morning, church. Good morning, church. I've noticed that uh, post-COVID church doesn't sing very much. We need to stop that. We need to fix that. And we need to try to join in the in the singing and in the praying and in the, all the whole worship deal that goes on. Um, I think it would be more fun if we heard one another singing together. So uh, in a few minutes, an hour, hour and a half, when I finish, we're going to sing another song. So sing as a congregation. Sing as a congregation gathered here so that the people who are online feel jealous that they're not part of what's going on. Uh, this morning I want to talk to you about uh, something that should appear up there soon. There we go. The truth in the world. I want to talk to you about it on a, on a couple of levels. I want, to, I, I want you to, to remember the word. We've talked about this phrase from Jesus before. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's from Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Sometimes when you listen to Jesus say something like that, or you read it in the scriptures, you kind of go, okay, well, I don't actually do sacrifice, kind of, but maybe he means personal sacrifice. And mercy for who, when, why, and what exactly should I be doing? And here's what I want to say. This is the, this, this line on the bottom. If you want to know what Jesus means, watch what Jesus does. I think it's a good principle for you to use whenever you're reading the scriptures. You read something Jesus says and you go, huh, I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense in my present context. And you've looked through the, the 45 different ver uh, versions that you've got and you, you've seen it described this way and described that way and the message confused you more and the Amplified just threw a bunch of words you didn't understand and you're still wondering what in the world Jesus meant. Watch what Jesus does. It is true for most people. If you want to know what a person means, watch what they do. When you're trying to understand the text in particular, watch what Jesus does. When you want to know what Jesus means, watch what he does. So we're going to look at a couple of stories today where Jesus talks through this kind of idea, this I desire mercy, not sacrifice idea. And I promise you it's in the stories. I promise you that it's covered in these places. And so as we do, I want to invite you first to open your book to the book of Matthew chapter, tw your Bible, book of Matthew chapter 12 as we pray. Father, I ask your blessing upon the time that we open your word. We have prayed for your blessing upon us. We have prayed for your blessing upon those of us online. Those who may be listening to this on Thursday or a Friday or a year from now, we ask, Lord, your blessing on each. Now we would ask that your word would become clear in our minds and in our lives and in our hearts. As we take it in today, we pray for the extra outpouring of your Holy Spirit, that we might gain wisdom and knowledge and understanding from your word. I pray, Lord, for your blessing on the preacher. He needs all the help he can get. Amen. If you're looking for the book of Matthew, Matthew's in the New Testament. New Testament begins about two-thirds of the way through most Bibles. Um, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. So as you're trying to cruise through and find that, if you're new to it and you're kind of thumbing your way back through, you'll kind of get out of the, out of the names that sound a little Old Testament-y. 
You know, when you start getting through Nahum and Habakkuk and some of those, you're getting close. If those are the smaller prophets, you're going to get to a page that may look like that. You're going to find yourself in Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. If you were on your device and you've been there for the last uh, two minutes, well, sorry. But if you bring a Bible, we want to make sure you can find your way around in it. Matthew chapter 12, um, the, the, the Bible begins to tell us a story about Jesus and his activities on Sabbath. Um, you can follow along on the screen. I'm going to read the text through, for, through the first time as we just are here together. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and how he and those who were with him How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read that the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So as we begin that first couple chapters, about this time Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath with his disciples. Now you've got to understand, it's an agrarian society. There are some things, some rules about agrarian societies. When I was a kid, I remember my grandfather telling me that the first two rows of any farmer's field were for people who were passing by. Anybody old enough to have their grandpa tell them that sort of a thing? Or to have heard it yourself or done it yourself? I remember that because it seems so weird to me. Why would the first two rows belong to anybody but the farmer? It just seemed like this is the farmer's field. These are his rows, all of them, all the way to the edges. But I came to find out later as I became a pastor that actually the biblical story is that you're supposed to make the outer edges of your of your field available to those who are poor, those who are needed, that somebody can get go to your field, get food when they need it. So the disciples are actually in a tradition that deeply runs through the, the, the warp and woof of what it means to be a Jew, to be a Jewish farmer. Part of your field, part of what you've planted and what now is ready to harvest is for those who are going by, walking through the field, walking by the field, and are hungry. That's the situation. These disciples are walking with Jesus, and they're hungry. Perfectly normal activity, except that it's Sabbath. So according to the rules... They were apparently wrong. His disciples were hungry, so they were breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. So you think about the picture. You you pull off a bit of grain, barley, wheat, whatever it might be. You can't just eat it like that. So they had to take that grain, pull off the kernels. Then they had to take those kernels, rub them in their hand, and blow off the chaff. Then they could eat the grains that were left in their hand. Unfortunately, from the perspective of the Pharisees who were watching and looking for a reason to blame Jesus or get Jesus into some, some complicated situation, they were breaking several rules. Not about needy being hungry on the Sabbath. It wasn't a bad thing to be hungry on the Sabbath. But it was a bad thing to satiate your hunger in this manner. They picked, so they harvested. They pulled the grains off. They rubbed them together, so they winnowed that grain 
and then they ate it. So they had performed two acts of work on the Sabbath that got them, got them in trouble for eating this day. So you get the picture? They've broken the rules. Then the rule, the rule keepers are watching while they're breaking the rules. They broke off these heads of grain and began to eat them. So the Pharisees saw it and they said to him, look, look at what your disciples are doing. Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, I've, I've told you this rule a lot, and I want to keep reminding you of it because it helps you keep in context who these guys are and what's bugging them. They believed that if every Jew kept the Sabbath perfectly just one time, that would force the Messiah to show up. And so every time somebody does something like this, it messes up the eschatology for everybody. Everybody else in Israel could have done the, done, kept the Sabbath perfectly that day, and these yahoos had messed it up by going through the grain, going through the field, picking grain, rubbing it together, blowing it off, and eating the grain. They had messed this up for everybody. That's what is part of the boiling point that the Pharisees strike over these Sabbath issues all the time. They have this weird eschatology that says if just you keep the Sabbath correctly, then the Messiah will come. Now, I've read through the Old Testament pretty, pretty completely, multiple times, and I don't know this rule. I didn't find this anywhere in the Old Testament text. There's a lot in the Old Testament text about the importance of keeping Sabbath. Call my Sabbath a delight, holy to the Lord. Don't do work or cause others to do work on my Sabbath. There are lots of bits and pieces. We talked about this just last week. I have a date with you. And I have a date with everybody else too. So don't mess it up for them either. That's the Sabbath regulation. But now the disciples have gone through the grain field. And according to what the Pharisees believed, they have messed up the coming of the Messiah. Do you catch the irony of all that's going on here? There he stands in the grain field with the guys who are messing up the Sabbath so that he can't come. And there he stands in the grain field with those very guys as they pluck this off and he doesn't seem to be upset by it. Can you believe it? They've messed this up for everyone. Then Jesus begins to teach. Do you ever notice how often God takes to teaching when you're kind of off base? When you've run off the rails of theologically, God will kind of bring you back. He'll throw texts at you, people in your way, and he'll start pulling you back to the, to the center, to where he wants you to be. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Do you know the story? David's fleeing from Saul. If you remember the story of David and Saul, you know that Saul is chasing down David because David has been anointed to be the next king. Saul is upset about it. Saul is concerned about it. Saul wants his son to be the king, not David. And so he's trying to prevent it. And he's chasing David down to try to kill him. David is on the run one day. He finds himself at the temple. It's not the temple in Jerusalem that you may be thinking of. It's in a different part of the community. It's far away from where, where the, the, the king is holding court. He runs into the building he finds the high priest, and he says, do you have anything to eat? He says, no, I have nothing. I just have the holy bread. Now, you've got to understand what the holy bread is. In the sanctuary, there are these, 
The, the building has several parts in it. You know, you have the outer court where you, the sac sacrifices are burned. You have the inner, inner first layer of the sanctuary called the holy place, which represents man's interaction with God. There you show the provision of God by the 12 loaves of bread on the right. In front of you is the provision of God for your communication with him, the altar of incense that fills the place and pours into the holy of holy on your behalf. And on your left, there would be a, a seven-sided candlestick that would light the space that you're in. And so they're talking about the bread of the presence, the bread that says God is presently providing everything you need. God is taking care of you. And there are stacks, there are two stacks of six, 12 loaves of bread. And, and they're not, this is not Wonder Bread. You got to understand, this is not sliced pieces of bread. This isn't what you're used to when you think of a loaf of bread. This is probably a round, thick bread, something like that. So probably call it an eight or 10 inch round of bread, maybe an inch or an inch and a half thick. That's the bread of the presence. And that's all the bread he has. But every week, every week, on the Sabbath, they were to change the bread out. But the priests can't break the Sabbath doing the ministry of the Sabbath for God. So they would put out, they would take out the old bread, they would put the new bread down. And the priest was supposed to eat that bread, share it with his family and with the other priests. No one else was supposed to eat this bread because it was holy. It was the bread of the presence. It had been in the holy place. It was God's bread. David shows up. He's running. He's hungry. He needs something to eat, and he needs something for his men. He says, do you have anything to eat? And the priest gives him this bread. Not the fresh bread that's going on today, but the other bread that he's taken off, the bread that's last week's bread. It might be more of a cracker this week. It, it, it may have some really good penicillin growing on the outside. We don't actually know what the situation is, but he gives that to David. The people were not as picky back then as they are now. David and his men eat the bread and continue on the run. And Jesus turns to this and says, it's not lawful for him to eat it, but he did. And God didn't strike him dead. He just keeps going. Or have you not read in the law? He said, now, now you've, the story is one thing. It's a, it's a historical story. It's a historical record. But have you not read in the law that on Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the, profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Kind of would relate to the story. The priests are actively moving about doing their job on the Sabbath, but they remain blameless. So Jesus now refers to the law and he says there are exceptions. There are exceptions made by God in these things. Have you, ever, have you guys noticed? Apparently they hadn't. Because they were not in the exception business. They were in the exceptional business. They were, they were in the Eve business. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve? Eve was in the business of upping the grade, upping the call. Remember when the, when the, when the serpent asks her, you're not supposed to eat of any of the trees in the garden? A hyperbolic, stupid question. Of course she's going to eat. She says, oh no, we can eat of all the trees of the garden except this one. The one uh, you're in. The one you're hanging out in talking weird snake. And we're not even supposed to touch it. Have you ever amplified a law that God gave? Have you ever kind of cranked it up? You know, my favorite, my favorite one of those is the waiting regulation. I, I, having not grown up in the Adventist church, I didn't know that you only waited in the 
water on the Sabbath. I didn't realize there was a no swimming regulation, and I broke it. I broke it myself. I broke it on behalf of others. Didn't know. Not sorry. Bad rule. Because it's one of those amplification rules. The Sabbath called us to rest, but it didn't call us not to recreate. It called us to rest, but it didn't claim, it didn't lay out the, the things that were work and the things that were not. It, it, it's, it was about your daily labor, not your swimming practices. And we just kept pushing it because it's easier to keep it if you push it. Do you know what I mean? If you push out the fringes of something, if you get it way over here, if all you need to do to survive is, is stay between here and there, and really all you really need to do to survive is be in the, on the platform, the more we stretch this thing so that we tighten it up, if we say you have to have one foot standing on that black box to survive, no one's going to leave the platform. Because the, the rule is really straightforward now. And we tighten these things up. We amplify them. And that's what they've been doing over the years. They've said you're not supposed to work. What is work? Well, work is anything you do that causes you to sweat. Do you know how we know that? Because God said you're not supposed to wear anything that makes you sweat if you're the priest. So it's clearly opposed to sweating. And so that must be part of it. And so work would include um, any distance you walk that was abnormally long. You shouldn't walk more than a Sabbath day's distance. It's not really defined in Scripture, but it seemed like a half a mile was a reasonable walk distance so that you weren't actually working. And you're not supposed to carry. If you start carrying things, you've got, you, you've got a, a 50-pound bag of grain that you're hauling along with you on the Sabbath. That's clearly work. But, but what if you're carrying your handkerchief? Well, if your handkerchief is just like a... It's like the bag. In fact, it's a lot like the bag. It's just like an empty bag. And so you probably shouldn't carry your handkerchief on the Sabbath. That would be work. And you can see how they're doing this. They're defining and defining and defining and defining. And they've defined this law, this rule about walking through the grain field, pulling off the grain, rubbing it together and eating it to be harvesting, winnowing, and therefore working. There really was a rule against carrying your handkerchief on the Sabbath. And so the way they fixed that was they sewed their handkerchief on their Sabbath garment. So if you had a runny nose, you didn't have to carry your handkerchief. You could just use your sleeve and not use your sleeve. And you see what you just did? You kind of giggled. Because it seems foolish, doesn't it? And so so Jesus says, you know, you know, David went and he ate the showbread. He wasn't supposed to do that. Did you know that the priest breaks the Sabbath every Sabbath? And God leaves him blameless for that. It's not like it's a secret. He's doing it in front of everybody. And yes, I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Okay, are you lost? We just took a weird turn. I wasn't talking about the temple. Were you talking about the temple? But wait a second. If the priests break the Sabbath in the temple, they're defiling the temple. If David eats the showbread of the temple, he's defiling the temple. And the audience would have understood we were talking about the temple. It's us 
we're the ones who don't understand. And so Jesus said, oh, by the way, here right now is an exceptional interpreter, an exceptional interpreter of the rules. Do you remember where the Sabbath commandments are listed in Exodus? Do you remember when you read the, the, the text, you tend to start at verse 3. Please start at verses 1 and 2 because when you read the first couple of verses, you find out it's about redemption. You find out that God is speaking, that the, the, the commandments are given audibly. And the active agent of God on the planet seems to have always been Jesus. So it's very, very likely that the voice heard that day from Mount Sinai was actually Jesus. Don't you think he might have meant what he meant and known what he was talking about, when he showed up, he actually knew what he meant. When you want to know what he means, you should watch what he does. There's one person here who's more important than even the temple. Here's Hebrews chapter 1. I've really put a lot of ellipses. You see the three little dots in there? I've shortened this up dramatically. When you see a preacher or anybody shortening things out. There's three sets of ellipses in there. I'm sorry. Go back and read the whole thing. I promise I'm not trying to, to put anything in it that's not there. I'm just trying to make it short enough to fit on one slide. Honestly. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. God who in times past spoke to us by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And I want you to catch this next phrase. It's my favorite phrase in this whole segment. The express image of his person. We, we, we get all confused about the Trinity and we have all these problems with the three and the one. and blah, 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 blah. Here's a great passage for you. Jesus is the express image of God's person. Jesus walking around the planet is the express image of God's person. The guy standing there who's better than the temple, who's greater than the temple, who is the better understanding of the text than the Pharisees or the scribes have, he is in fact the express image of God's person. So here's the deal. If you can figure out what Jesus means by watching Jesus act, seeing him walk around, seeing what he does, you can figure out what God means by watching Jesus too. Got it? I'm trying to dig a theological foundation for us here so that we don't think that we're off on some tangent that isn't real scripturally. You see, we've always taught, our church has always taught, grace is the point. It's, it's, it's what we mean. We, when we say grace is the point, we mean that it's the solid foundation. Grace is not an ancillary thing added on, thrown on like a blanket on the bed. Grace is the bed. Grace is the bed frame. Grace is the foundation of the house. It's never been a, a, a thing that didn't exist since the first sin before the foundations of the earth, before man, when Satan sinned, there was in fact grace. And before Satan was created, before man was created, the fact that God went ahead with the creation was an act of grace. It's always been true. When God knew that we would fail, there had to be mercy and there had to be grace. Or the simple thing to do would just be, don't start, because they're going to mess this up. Instead, there was mercy and there was grace. It's always been the foundation. It never, never in the past did, we, did, did, did God move in our direction without grace. Even when Adam and Eve had not yet sinned, 
God's grace was still available because he knew they would. You got it? So when Jesus expresses the, the image of God, he expresses it walking through the towns and healing and touching and loving and caring for people, and he reveals the heart of God. So we're back in our story in verse 7, but if you had known what this means, Pharisees, If you understood this one passage, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. What did he just say about his disciples? They're guiltless. They have done nothing wrong by plucking the heads of grain, winnowing it in their hands, and eating it. You guys have stretched the law to cover this, but the law wasn't intended to be like this. It wasn't intended to hammer on them like this. It was, it was intended to be a blessing to them. So you wouldn't, had you understood that God desires in his deepest, deepest heart, mercy, not sacrifice, you wouldn't have blamed these people. You wouldn't have condemned the guiltless If we're looking for foundational principles in, in the world to live by, wouldn't not condemning the guiltless be on our list? Wouldn't it be important to, to not go around condemning people who don't deserve condemnation? If you knew what I meant when I wrote through Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you guys wouldn't have condemned these guys for walking through and, and satiating their hunger in this very small simple way they didn't make the farmer mad they didn't steal anything it's a it's provided for them and what they did is they pulled it off and they ate it was not what sabbath was about sabbath was about them not going fishing not about them having something to eat as they walked through a field and oh by the way they're not fishing so we're good story number one he finishes by saying the Son of Man is Lord. Get the next word. Listen to the next word carefully, Seventh-day Adventists. Even of the Sabbath. Even of the Sabbath. So, uh, by the way, when you open John's book in Revelation, you open it up and it says, I was, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Even it was the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the rule. When you want to understand what Jesus means, watch what Jesus does. He doesn't condemn the disciples in this case. He backs the Pharisees up. Notice he doesn't actually jump hard on them at this point. This is not a you ruthless bunch of snakes. This is not that kind of a condemnation. He's, he's giving them a suggestion. If you had known what this means, you could have saved yourself this embarrassment. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We're going to back up into the same book in a minute, so turn to Matthew chapter 9. If you're still in Matthew, fold back a few pages. If you want to know what Jesus means, watch what Jesus does. If you want to know the heart of God, watch what Jesus does. So we're going to back chapter 9. 9 is another story, different story, but it starts with the call of Matthew. Remember Matthew? 
um, the, the chosen has made Matthew forever different in my mind. But this, the story of Matthew, Jesus passed on from there. He's walking through, uh, through Galilee, through Capernaum. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he, so he rose and followed him. Left everything, walked away, tied up the place, locked the, locked the door, whatever he did. He walked out on the whole deal, followed Jesus. You do realize if you want to know what Jesus means, you should watch what Jesus does, and this is weird. No one's expecting Jesus to call a tax collector to be his disciple. No one's expecting it. Why? Well, simple. Tax collectors are on the side of the Romans, and we don't like the Romans. It's interesting, the previous story is all kind of a wrapped up in this concept of, of Sabbath-keeping and Sabbath-breaking with the disciples of Jesus. Why are they not better Sabbath-keepers, these yahoos that are your disciples? By the way, by this time, he's won three chapters from now that, that we find him. But in here in chapter 9, it starts with, hey, tax collector, hey, you, Roman sellout guy, hey, you, follow me. He's picked the wrong guy. Again, by the way, he doesn't have an A student in the bunch. No Harvard grads. No community college grads. Bunch of blue-collar, hard-working, normal Capernaum guys. Walks by and he sees this guy. He needs somebody who can do math. So he says, hey, you, follow me. Now, Jesus obviously knows more about Matthew than anyone there knows about Matthew. He knows Matthew's heart. He knows what Matthew's thinking. He knows how Matthew feels about following God. He probably knows how Matthew feels about his job working for the Romans. And he says, follow me. So Matthew leaves the tax booth, follows him. And now Jesus has one of the most hated groups of people in all of Israel, working for him. The only thing worse he could have done was call a Samaritan. And he doesn't seem to dislike them much either. I don't know who your them is, but this is definitely one of them for them. You know the thems and the days. You have them, I have them, we should not have them, we should try to clear out all of the thems and the days from our mind and our lives and stop thinking of people as if they're an object and just they and them. That group. Instead to recognize that every single one of us that takes breath as given that breath by God is given that breath by God. He is our creator and he is our sustainer. That means the person you despise the most breathes because of the grace of the God who gives you breath. You could be on somebody's day list. I'm on a lot of people's day list. When you decide to be a preacher, you get on the they list pretty quick. You, it's like you, they stamp your preacher card and you're on the they list for a bunch of the world. It's weird to be on the they list. Weirder still to have a they list and be on the they list. And I guarantee you, you're all on the they list. This guy was on the they list. 
them, they, the other, not us group. Jesus goes, follow me. And collects a tax collector. And this story gets crazier. And the fact that they reported this story is pretty crazy too. And notice the opening phrase that Matthew places here. Matthew, the guy who is hosting the dinner party, says, now it happened. Did you not invite these guys? Did your buddies suddenly realize that you had Jesus over and show up? Very possible. Jesus is a big deal. Jesus was a bigger deal in Capernaum than he is in Rockland. People who weren't supposed to hang out with him show up. Now it happened. Jesus sits down at a meal. He's not controlling the guest list. Apparently neither is Matthew because these Yahoo tax collectors start showing up. As Jesus sat in the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and the requisite sinners that seem to show up when Jesus sits down, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So Matthew gets invited to follow Jesus. Matthew has potluck at his house for Jesus. And a whole bunch of reprobates show up at the house. It just happened. It just happened. Jesus didn't invite him, as far as we know. Matthew apparently didn't invite him. Otherwise, he would say, and I invited a bunch of my reprobate friends to come and have dinner with us. So there's Jesus. Pulling on his clothes, feeling uncomfortable, washing his hands again, trying to move back from the table, trying to get away from this obviously inappropriate place for him to be. Right? Apparently not. Apparently, he decides just to hang out with them. Just As usual, the Pharisees are watching. Did you notice in both cases it says, when the Pharisees saw it? When they see what Jesus is doing, they don't understand. But you do, because when you want to know what Jesus is saying, watch what Jesus does. When you want to know what Jesus is trying to teach, watch how he behaves. The Pharisees saw it. They turned to his disciples. I just, whenever I think of them turning to the disciples, I think, bad move. Go to Jesus. These guys are not going to be as nice as he is. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because that's, that's the rule. Everybody knows that rule. You're not supposed to eat with tax collectors and sinners. If you're a, if you're a good Jew, you don't hang out with sinners. Stop for a sec. Doesn't that disqualify everyone? 
You can't even hang out with yourself. That's tough. And no one can hang out with you either. You're a good, upstanding member of the Pharisaic party. You need to only hang out with the holy. Jesus happens to know that there aren't any of those around except for him. So he doesn't want to be lonely, so he chooses to hang out with everybody else, which includes always, obviously, tax collectors, not necessarily, but sinners all the time. He's at a tax collector's house having dinner. His friends come, and these reprobates get caught by the Pharisees. Busted again! Jesus' disciples walk through, they pick some grain. Busted! They, get, they go and have a dinner party with the wrong people. Busted! Jesus gets busted all the time. Ever been busted? You're on Jesus' team, apparently, if you're getting busted. Especially if the reason you're getting busted is because you're hanging out with people God loves. Sometimes you just have to pray for this thing. Dead Scott, sorry. There we go, thank you. Jesus then answers their question. The question on everybody's mind. Why is he hanging out with these people? Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, they're the ones I'm looking for. I would like to hang out with people, says Jesus, who need me. Isn't that good news for the church? Good news for the world? I would like to hang out with people who actually need me. I prioritize saving people. That's my role. That's my job. You want to know what Jesus is thinking, what Jesus is teaching. Watch what Jesus is doing. He's hanging out with people who need salvation and know it. See, the problem with the Pharisees is they need salvation. They just don't know it. These guys all know it. They've come in seeking Jesus. Uninvited, apparently, they've come in seeking out Jesus. Do you think that touches his heart? I think it does. I don't know. He didn't say, but man, I bet it did. Sat down in Matthew's house. He's got his disciples, Matthew. They're sitting there starting to eat. And then walks somebody of Matthew's friends. Matthew greets him, say, hey, Sam, wasn't expecting you. And then walks another one of his friends, hey, Manuel, I wasn't expecting you. Oh, hey, Gladys, wasn't expecting you. And pretty soon the house is filling up with people who Matthew hangs around with. The only kind of people who would hang around with Matthew are known tax collectors and known sinners. And so those people have shown up looking for Jesus because they know they need him. They know he has answers no one else has. And he doesn't seem to turn anyone away. When you want to know what Jesus is thinking, when you want to know what Jesus is teaching, watch what Jesus is doing. Here's the thing. It's this phrase again. In this same chapter, in this same space, he brings up Hosea again, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I've given them more of the text. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. For a people who believed that their entire religion was based on what they sacrificed and what they offered, Jesus says, look, look, I want something that's not that. 
I want you to understand that what I'm looking for is you to behave mercifully toward others. Mercy is something you can only do to someone else. You realize that? Mercy is something you really can only do to, your, to someone else. Now, I know that you're, if, you're, if you've been to your psychologist, if you are a psychologist, if you've been trained as a psychologist, you just said that's not true. You have to be merciful with yourself. Okay. In your, psycholo- in, in your psychology, yes. But in terms of human life, you should... In terms of the human experience, it's something I give to someone. I know you can be merciful with yourself. I know that you can love yourself. But what I'm challenging you here with, and I don't want to argue with you over the other side of this, I just just want you to catch that he's asking for an outward expression towards someone else who doesn't deserve what you're offering. He's asking you to be merciful. Mercy means you're in the driver's seat. Mercy means you have the right to condemn. Mercy means you can look down your nose if you want. And he said, I desire that when you're in that position, you offer kindness, grace, mercy, love to that other person. That your heart goes out to them and you feel for them and you offer to them that kind of grace and mercy you want from them. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and a knowledge of God more than birth offerings. Now remember this, people have been told that you have to bring offerings to the temple multiple times a year. That you need to come and bring sacrifices. That you need to bring your tithes into the storehouse. You, he, they've been told all of this thing, these the practices and the behaviors, but if you brought your lamb and you didn't understand that this lamb was representing a sacrifice that God would make on your behalf, it's just you throwing up a lamb. If you brought your sacrifices for offering and you didn't know God's heart, then you're just putting something out there, probably actually hoping that you can somehow gain ground with God by doing this thing. And you're not. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And I, I wish you knew me better than you do. It would be more important to me then your offerings. It's interesting that what what Jesus ends when Christianity is born is sacrifices and offerings. And he's left you to, to hear him say, I desire that you be merciful in your world. I desire that you know me. I, lo- I have pictures, several pictures in my collection of pictures. Thousands deep now because you carry a phone around with you. You're taking pictures of the most ridiculous things all the time. But I have taken purposeful pictures like this one. I have one that I was looking at recently and considered putting up here. It's a, it's a little pine tree. The pine tree is probably about this tall. It has roots that are growing down over a rock. The roots are probably about, I don't know, as big around, bigger than a basketball. This little pine tree's been in that spot a long time. I didn't want to cut it and count the rings. That would just be horrible. But at some point, a little seed fell into a crack in the rocks and sprouted. And it just started to grow. It started to push out 
against the side. It found enough nutrient, enough moisture to make it work. And now, it, again, it was maybe, it might have been three, four feet tall. Three, probably more than four. And it had survived a long time in that crack growing. growth in that difficult situation of that tree was cracking the rock. No matter how hard we've become, Jesus' way can change everything even about us. In our hardest, hardest hearts, in those places where our head is so set on some idea that it might take a hammer to break through that thing. When the seed of God's love and His mercy falls into a situation, it changes that situation. When the seed of God's love and mercy falls into a person, it changes that person. When we recognize the gift of God's mercy is the only reason we breathe, it's hard to live the same. When we realize that it was because we are covered by the sacrifice of one who did not sin, that we even have the choice and the opportunity to be saved, it changes who you are. Jesus made a way where there was no way. There's no reason for that little thing to be growing in that crack. There's no reason for that little pine tree to be growing in that crack. But Jesus makes a way in the most difficult situations, no matter how hard the situation may feel for you at this moment. No matter how badly you don't want to offer mercy. No matter how badly you feel toward the person that's coming to your mind. No matter how much mercy you think you need and you think he isn't offering, Jesus makes a way. You see, it's not just that Jesus desires mercy. It's that Jesus offers mercy. You want to know what Jesus thinks, what he teaches, what he means? Watch what he does. Watch the way he treats people. Consider how he treats you. I desire that you go through the world bringing mercy, not condemnation. A knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. Those or are outside expressions that can easily be done without your heart. To truly know God, you have to invest your heart. Truly give mercy. To truly give mercy, you have to push the other person out in front of you. You have to allow someone else to be more important than you in this moment. And extend mercy. You know what's happening that day in the household of the tax collector? Jesus knows the rules. 
he knows this is going to make him bad. They're going to be or make him look bad. That people in the community, certain groups, are going to not hear him again. They're not going to hear a word he has to say after this event gets published. But he doesn't care. He's not there for him. He's there for them. That day when his disciples are being accused, he steps in front of the bullet. He steps out in front of this group of people who are pointing fingers at them, not at him. He's apparently not doing this. It's his disciples, those untrained, blue-collar yahoos that follow him around. They're causing the problem. But when they start to set their sights on the disciples, Jesus steps in front of the bullet. And he says, to get to them, you have to go through me. You see, church... the gathering of the merciful in a merciless land. It's the grace covered who've decided to just spread their skin to everyone around them that they can. foundation of who you are who we are is found in this simple idea that we get to roam through the world sliding out of the judgment seat and into the mercy seat you are never more like God when you're giving and all of God's gifts come from the mercy seat let's pray Father in heaven we know we don't deserve it but we know that's why it's called mercy Lord, you desire us to emulate you in this, and I pray that you would help us because we're not good at it. Remind us in small ways and giant ways that we live in a merciless world, a judgmental world, a graceless world, and we get to be Jesus here. Lord, we desire mercy. We desire mercy to flow from your church. We desire mercy to flow from our seat. May our seat become Some small way to see your mercy.